Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast, which is slightly different this week. It's episode number 27, and the Hobcast, as we explain in a moment what it is, but uh, we're recording this. You can hear it's a slightly reflective sound from the eaves of where we are at the moment. Uh, we're actually... It makes it sound like we're in a barn. Well, we are in a barn. We are in a barn. We are. Um, listen, the the fact is... It's so hot in our booth at the moment. It's an extremely hot weekend here in the UK. Uh, I've just checked the temperature on the landing, and it's recording 25 and a half degrees. And that's at 7.30am. Yeah, I'm recording this at 7.30am. We actually planned to get up a little earlier, but we actually managed to get some sleep last night, so probably better to to favour that than... um... I always favour sleep over anything. Yeah, it's true. It's true. (laughs) Um, So we've decided to record this in bed. Uh, because it's the coolest place. They like Madonna. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. And I'm Tracy not... M&M&M. Yeah. Um, but, but just we needed to stay cool because we recorded an interview, which you'll hear later, with the fabulous Lee Russell, the author of the Geraldine Steele series uh, and multi-million selling. Two million, she said. Yeah, it's coming up for two million books she sold. So a fantastic guest and unbelievable level of insight and wisdom as well she's imparted in the hour we spoke to her it's a it's well worth listening to all of it because we got so much from that interview oh we really did i mean she she's like you say she's so wise she's so experienced she's seen so many changes in the publishing industry since she first decided to give it a go and yeah, she's got a lot of a lot of interesting things to say and as always we talk to a lot of writers don't we but every interview is different it is, it is, and yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we do this podcast is partly to, to I mean, we, we gain so much from it, It's we get inspiration, we get energy from it, we get a sense that we're part of a bigger community, and we also get practical tips on how to write and how to publish. Do you know what, we should actually say what we do. We should. Well, my name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. Together we run Hobeck Books, and that's a UK independent publisher of the following genres. Mystery. Crime. Suspense. Are you still tired? No, I'm I'm reflecting the location. Oh, I see. And thrillers. Now, uh, we would usually expect the cat to join us at some point on the bed. She does like it here. Don't say that because I I wouldn't be surprised. She's been fed and she normally then goes out for a little wee-wee or something like that and then she'll come back, I'm sure. Well, she's actually lying in a lozenge of bright sunlight in the <laughs> in the lounge. Oh, is she? You've seen her? Yeah, I have. She just settled. She was just potted along, settled as a sort of 
uh, well, the kids would know what shape it is, some sort of polygon of light. <laughs> you need to ask Luke who's doing it over maths. <laughs> yeah. Um, an isosceles t- triangle or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, she's lying in that, so she might well join us after she's bored. That's her favourite spot, isn't it, when it's sunny? She just loves to bask in the sunshine. She does. And then she complains it's too hot. <laughs> Yesterday she was quite amusing because I, I went out to get some food and I came back and Aki was under your car. She came out from under your car. Because <laughs> it's lovely and cool under a, I guess so. a parked car. But she, she was meowing at me and following me as if to say, what have you done? This is too hot. Can you do something, please? Turn it down. Yeah, the kids were saying the same sort of thing, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, having complained all winter, it's too cold here. And now it's it, it, the, the issue that we have with this barn is that it, it, it lies so that during the afternoon, the whole side of the barn is a red brick barn um, with slate roof, yes, uh, catches the sun. And this building warms up incredibly fast. Uh, there was very little breeze yesterday afternoon, so there was there was nothing really to sort of compensate. And the booth, it's its, its own microclimate in, in itself. It's always warm, uh, but it was roasting yesterday, so uh, we've taken this uh, decision to, to record here. So here we are with a little hand recorder that's just going to go to Harrogate and be part of our coverage of the Harrogate Festival, which starts on Thursday. So that's the, the highlight of the week to come. Uh, and we're building up, up our... Uh, stock of things to take so uh, Hobeck authors who are listening to this will be taking your books and uh, trying to generate some interest uh, we've got the crate of crime we do yeah for those who sign up to our mailing list during the festival it's a, a wonderful prize uh, which is first editions and first copies of the series of all the authors that we've published up to this point so that's 10 books in a uh, snug little and atmospheric crate, <laughs> vegetable crate. Uh, it was. It's worked perfectly. When it first arrived, I thought, "Ooh, it's a bit small." But it's actually been incredibly oh, it's, fortuitous. Yeah, it, fits it, it does look really good as well, and it's it's polished up really nicely as well. And yeah, so exactly. I t- I sent you off to order a crate on on the internet, and uh, yeah, the dimensions weren't quite what we expected, but it's perfect fit couldn't have been better no it couldn't have been so we're really looking forward to to harrogate and and meeting you know our contemporaries in the industry uh and you know making new friends and uh reaching out to our audience as well as we hope so it's going to be a it's a big big deal for us indeed and also just putting faces to names because there's lots of people we've seen online or um well most of our authors we've only uh, met on zoom thus far so um and the same with lots of the people we've interviewed for the podcast and things like that so it'd be great to actually see that there are real people out there and they're not just um a face not just a face <laughs> that could be a strap line for one of our books at some point uh right we'll we'll keep that line uh stored away now news is it's becoming thinner and thinner if you're relying on the bookseller for it because uh i just get the impression at this time of year the publishing industry sort of decides, oh, well, we're going to have a knock-off. You know, if, if London Book Fair had happened, that would have been sort of where things were happening. And then uh, they they disappear off to Tuscany. I think that's true. I think the holiday season has kicked in. Um, I mean, schools, some schools have broken up already. Or net, or early Certainly private week. schools will have done. Uh, yeah, so uh, our, my children, they're all off. They all start 
breaking up next week um, and people do go on holiday and so there isn't the news doesn't get generated because the people you haven't got the full staff working so there isn't very much at all um, I mean talking about being in the office the one thing I found and I, I do find this quite interesting because I've been working remotely um, for um, coming up to 17 years now so since my oldest was one when I, I so I finished my maternity leave instead of working returned to the office I did some of the same job and I did some other things as well but I did some of the same job remotely and it worked and I carried on for 17 years but at the time that was quite unusual and um, it was almost frowned upon as how can you know how can you monitor what work that person is doing if they're working remotely you can't necessarily you know they they could be uh, off doing other things where it's completely changed now it's actually because of the covid situation and so many people had to work remotely and they were able to do their job and they were able to do their job very well they were also able to save time for commuting and meetings and things like that and the publishers um were talking in the bookseller about the fact that at the moment, yes, of course, some people will still have to work away from the office and some people can return to the office. But they can continue that if it works and it's successful. Ultimately, it'll save them money because it'll save them in overheads if they end up downscaling their office space. Yeah, I think that the days of the, the mega office in the centre of Soho or wherever is, uh, or Water Street or... Um, well, that's Soho, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Bloomsbury or wherever. Um, that's that's a thing of the past. But I think that, um, and it's interesting, uh, you know, to keep my old uh, spot in the BBC. I mean, I had this big. You have to forgive me. I'm about to drop the, the microphone. I'm trying to drink coffee, lying prone, and holding a microphone is n- never the easiest thing. Anyway. Um, no, I mean, the, the, it, I think it's going to be a sea change for the BBC because obviously they had to, um, somewhat fortuitously, about 18 months, two years before the pandemic, they changed their uh, operating system for for running newsrooms. So they brought in a whole load of uh, what was supposed to be a very sort of flexible, portable um, newsroom system. Which, which should allow you to work from the fields. And indeed, after two years of major teething problems, when the pandemic struck, it turned out they could. You know, you could create a TV program from your bedroom um, in terms of you know running orders and scripts and whatever. And um, that flexibility has been brilliant. But I had a, a big argument with my boss uh, before I left. One of my staff wanted to work from home remotely one day a week. Um producing the, the the regional sports news for radio um and uh this was objected to because uh technically it thought it wasn't possible but of course now it's proven to be the case so uh i think the bbc will probably start downscaling some of their facilities certainly moving a lot of people out of london at the moment uh, in news um anything to save money which they desperately need to because so many people have not paid the licence fee this year. Is that true? Yeah, the annual report proved that something like a million people have not paid their licence fee extra. Um, This sort of defund the BBC campaign is really biting. Wow, wow, that is going to hurt, isn't it? 
Well, if you think about it, so if it's a million people, that's 140... Oh, you're good at maths. ...seven million pounds worth of revenue they're not getting, and that is a huge chunk of their annual intake. That's almost as much as Lineker gets. Lucky Lineker. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny because the Daily Mail always have a campaign against the BBC, but they, they did tote up um, how much it costs to bring Gary Lineker to Salford. <laughs> during the Euros <laughs> because he gets a chauffeur-driven um, vehicle. Uh, he doesn't tend to stay in Salford where the, the, all the all the Euro uh, presentation was done from Salford apart from the games that were held at Wembley. And so he's living in Hertfordshire. He gets a limo uh, to and from. And each trip was about 450 quid, something like that, because um, he won't stay in a hotel. Oh, so he goes back to sleep as well. Yeah, and, and and it was true of a lot of the pundits as well. They were being ported up from London to come to Salford, present their thing, go back. That That is, yes, I don't know what to say really because I, I think he should just be plonked on a train. Well, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're scratching that itch again, aren't we? Sorry about that. Right, um, other news. Well, I think the, the really significant thing that just fell in our lap yesterday early this week we were speculating and, and trying to figure out why on amazon certain book pages with certain publishers have lots of extra content um images and even videos uh and you know from the publisher there's a sort of section it says from the publisher and then you know there'll be some some lovely imagery and strong text to to encourage more more uh, people to buy and that uh, you did some research, and yeah, because I thought, well, if it's from the publisher, that's us, so we should be able to put this content on um, Amazon. And um, I couldn't find anything, and then I stumbled across a forum where people were discussing this, and it you need to be invited by Amazon to be uh, a vendor, and then you have something called Vendor Central, and within Vendor Central, for which you're invited to join, you can add this content. So then I just thought, oh well. <laughs> we have to wait till we're uh, making a lot more money, a lot bigger company than we are now, before we get invited. And gave uh, up. Well, yeah. I mean, again, you know, you can't twist Amazon's arm in any way. They'll they'll, they'll act arbitrarily and um, and you, you know without the influence of anyone else. However, last night I started uh, looking to launch some more Amazon ad campaigns for our authors. And suddenly there was this new section, certainly in KDP UK, and I, I imagine it'll be in the States as well. Often it's a bit slower in, in other territories. Um, and I think it was something like uh, uh, content um, grade A plus or something. Yeah, something plus, wasn't it? Content yeah. plus. Add yeah, content a, plus a plus. Something like that. And suddenly all of those options are there um, for you to use. I mean, you had a quick look at it. We... we we hasten to add, we, we're not doing it in great detail because we literally it was the last thing we looked at before we went to bed. And we sort of said, right, well, we'll look at this afresh in the morning. And we're recording the podcast before we've actually done that research. But it will allow us, by the by the look of it, to create bespoke uh, video, uh, sorry, um, visual content that will promote our books and you can put in tables and all sorts of supporting information. I mean, not that you would do that with, with a book like necessarily that we publish but um a it, nice pivot table yeah a lovely pivot table that's really going to twist people's arms isn't it no i think i think 
um, suddenly there's a lot more options and uh, we're in a really good position to, to exploit that because, I mean, you have a, a great gift for creating original imagery. I love it. That's the best part of the job. I love doing that stuff. So, yes, I'm going to have a great time. I, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what you come up with and, <laughs> and experiment with. But, um, you know, it's it's certainly something that, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to perfect with the options of just purely text, really, uh, that we had in the past. I don't know how much, you know, um, some some stuff that we're going to put together in Photoshop and other platforms will actually, you know, persuade people to buy um, but I've certainly noticed that we've been getting quite a lot of uh, clicks on Amazon, perhaps not, you know, uh, converting at the, the rate that we'd like um, necessarily, but that's always something that, you know, you need to experiment and perfect. Yes, because uh, like you're talking about, the, the, the when people click and then when they actually make a decision to buy, there were so many factors, the cover, the description, the reviews, the blurb, the look of the page. So if we can enhance this with, with just something simple and visual, it doesn't have to be too complicated, but just something eye-catching, then it could help a little bit. Yeah, there's no harm in trying. And um, I'm sure there are dozens of independent publishers and particularly independent authors who will be you know, rushing to try these new options and, and, and see what, what sells, and then no doubt writing the uh, definitive book on how to do it. Uh, <laughs> That's what that's what we should do, you know, because we're going to be pioneers. Whoever it is, um, this is going to be it's a it's a fresh opportunity, and they don't come along too often on Amazon. No, indeed. So we will be investigating when we get some spare time this week. Yeah, if there is much, um, <laughs> it's a busy week, isn't it? Oh, it's crazily busy. I mean, I, I've thrown a, a game of golf with um, with one of my oldest friends, uh, well, one of our oldest friends, the man who got us together, Russell Fuller, the BBC tennis correspondent. Um, we haven't seen each other uh, in person for a few months and I said, well, let's meet up somewhere halfway. He lives down in Surrey and we live in Staffordshire, obviously. Uh, and so we've plunked for uh, for a golf course in Oxfordshire uh, to, to catch up, um, which is kind of important to, to you know, to see people. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. I hope it's not as hot as it has been. No, I, well, I don't know. I haven't checked, but um, I've got quite a busy week too because Monday is uh, my youngest, his last day at primary school. So we have sports day and leavers assembly and then I'll be just too emotionally torn to do any work after that, I'm sure. Um, and then on Tuesday, another dentist to tri tri trip with middle child and um, I've got a hospital appointment on Friday and then we've got Harrogate as well. So <laughs> I think Wednesday is the only day that we're both at home all day that is true that is true yeah i'm trying to figure out a way of, of interrupting that too uh yeah i've got <laughs> i'm sure you will, I'm sure you will. <laughs> i've got medical stuff too uh on monday so it's um yeah and then harrogate looms large and uh, we just don't know what to expect to be honest I mean, it's going to be a very different harrogate because of the some of the restrictions i mean oh, okay as we launch this uh podcast on the monday um, we're recording this on the day before. Uh, it will be Freedom Day, as it's laughingly known. And um, I think anecdotally, from everyone we speak to, I think there is a genuine genuine fear that Freedom Day is freedom for the virus, not for, for, for human beings. 
that's that's true that's very true i think so too i know so many people who are either they've had positive tests um or they're self-isolating we have one child self-isolating at the moment you tried to go to greg's yesterday didn't you but it was shut yeah because all the staff have been told have been pinged uh what they're calling the pingdemic the pandemic, yeah. <laughs> I'm. I should touch a really large piece of wood, which I am. Um, <laughs> oh, why did I say that? I haven't been pinged. Is what I was going to say. <laughs> no, you haven't. You haven't. No, but my son uh, Ben was was pinged uh, during our holiday uh, just over a week ago. Um, He's been pinged. I've been pinged, and, and look, I'm. The, <laughs> You know, it's uh, a dark irony that the health secretary's now got coronavirus, um, Sajid Javid, and, and the the, the pe- papers are now speculating whether Boris will, because uh, he had a long meeting with Sajid Javid yesterday. He <laughs> should get it again. Well, he should be pinged. I mean, oh, you know, he should be pinged at least. Yeah, no, no, but he's he, he. I mean, the word coming out of number ten uh, as I speak is that the prime minister will carry on as normal and you know flout the laws, basically the rules. I mean, they are expecting, and this is the. I mean, it's the worst case scenario. So, UK, what's the population? About 65, 66 million, something like that. Um, you're looking at 6 million people per week, very, very soon, being pinged into self isolation. I read an article uh, about the situation in Padstow in Cornwall, which um, is a lot of foodie heaven, thanks to Rick Stein's empire and various other uh, uh, chefs moving into the area and, and opening restaurants. They're all shutting at the moment because one member of staff goes down and then the rest of them have to self-isolate. And they just haven't got enough staff to keep going. And Cornwall's soon going to be flooded with well, it already is. holiday makers, isn't if, it? You, you oh, at, hungry ones. Well, yeah, if you look at <laughs> look at my Instagram, the number of influencers and, um, and media people who are in Cornwall at the moment is monstrous. But, you know, they basically were saying that uh, they can't open their kitchens. Uh, and they're losing all this revenue, and that's also the small little pubs as well, not the big big names. Um, it's it's desperate. Anyway, that's what we're heading towards in yeah. Harrogate, um, which will no doubt be reflected upon in the in the future as the super spreader event that wiped out the uh, British crime writing community. Um, let's hope not. Maybe yes. maybe a few pints of uh, the sponsor's beer will will keep Thinks keep the virus. Yeah, yeah the Thinkston's <laughs> all peculiar. We'll keep it keep it at bay. Anyway, that, that's uh, your excuse, isn't it? That's why you're going to get completely. Uh, drunk on Thinkston's old peculiar beer. So I'm just keeping COVID away. Well, the, the main thing I'm going to, I mean, because <laughs> you know, we as 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 Bex mentioned, she's got a, uh, an important hospital appointment on Friday, which you, you can't miss. So I'm going up on my own to start with on the Thursday, which is when they announce the winner of this year's award, um, and start things rolling for Hobeck. And then you'll join me on the Friday. But um, you know, Thursday could get messy. Um, yeah. So I hope you are going to meet me on Friday. Without a sore head. I'll do my best. <laughs> I, I, I can be disciplined. Anyway, let's get it to the interview. They're talking about discipline. Can um, I quote you on that? I can be disciplined. I want to frame it. Not in the... <laughs> not when you're sober. Not in the sadomasochistic sense. Um, that's not the sort of thing I'm... I'm speechless. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's speak to the wonderful Lee Russell, and um, that we have a confession to make here. We discovered at the end of the interview that Lee had actually submitted to us, and we'd politely declined because our submissions were shut. And this is an author who has, over the last 12 years, 
built an incredible reputation and huge following for her Geraldine Steele uh, crime series, but has also delved into various other books and gone full-time as an author some years ago. Um, it's a fantastic story, as you'll, you'll hear. It's, it's an inspiring story. Uh, and yet, Rebecca oh, turned her down. <laughs> yes, she, she read out to me my polite reply, which was sort of, you know, thank you for submitting to us, but unfortunately we are currently closed for submissions with best wishes. <laughs> It was very polite and she was charmed <laughs> by it. But at the same time, we have just turned away somebody who sold nearly two million books. Uh, anyway, that's another story. But it has it was a great honour to, to speak to Lee. Um, and I think that no matter what side of the industry you're in, uh, or if you're just an aspiring author, what she has to say in the next hour will uh, it has the potential not to change your life, but certainly... It'll be... make you think, won't it? It really will. Yeah. And, and, and make you feel, you know, anything is possible. So let's speak to Lee Russell. Lee Russell, thank you so much for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. It's a great honour. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. And I'm sure it's going to be fun chatting today. So, uh... <laughs> Or a money-back guarantee. <laughs> That's our aim. That's our aim. You know, we, we have fun. I don't know whether the guests do, but... <laughs> there's no feedback form at the end I I mean the beauty of these things is you can always freeze if somebody asks a question that you don't want to answer you just suddenly don't move as if your (laughs) internet has has cut out and and you've frozen (laughs) you've learned every trick in the zoom catalog it seems (laughs) (laughs) I'm a wily old what I used to do in broadcasting if I got a question that I didn't know or um I was I'll, I'll give you an example I was in Mali covering football and I traveled four or five hours across the bush in a battered old Mercedes to get to the next venue and the producer eventually I came into you know obviously in somewhere like Mali we're talking about the year 2000 uh yeah 2002 so very little mobile signal outside of any of the cities and um I came into signal range and I've got this producer on the other end of the line who had a fire, fiery reputation and she's screaming at me where's your voice piece and I'm thinking well I haven't got one so I sort of protested for a few seconds and then got a volley of abuse so I started the voice piece I just did it off the top of my head you know it's a it's a baking hot afternoon in Sakasso. it'll be tough for the teams and then I just pulled the plug <laughs> <laughs> and that was it well, and uh, I, I got away with it today. all these years <laughs> oh well now it now the story's out <laughs> No, I won't be amusing you today. No, good. Let's. Uh, <laughs> we let's, won't let's... be talking about the weather, although it is it is getting quite hot here, isn't it? Oh, it, you well, should it really be in this is. booth. In this booth, it's like being in a sauna. <laughs> yeah. But get you out in Mali in a Mercedes. Ooh. Well, yeah, I mean, but then we're talking about a sort of Mercedes that would have been um, on her, you know, where uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service sort of era uh, Mercedes, <laughs> the one that uh, Blofeld hangs out with the machine gun. Um, <laughs> still sounds more exciting than being in a booth in Staffordshire <laughs> driven by the oldest man in Marley who proudly told me he was 72 and he'd been uh, he'd outlived every single person he'd, he'd ever known of his childhood so uh, oh, yeah that's quite cool the wonderful city yeah, yeah. I hope you actually get there <laughs> <laughs> as we speak to you Lee um, behind you you have your fantastic image of some of the books and I think you just mentioned that it was 25 you've published now I think it's 20. Do you know what? I, I, I do lose count. Um, there's another one coming out this year. Another two coming out this year. I beg your pardon. Another two coming out this year. And then um, 
the 16th in my Geraldine series is coming out in August next month. And I'm um, under contract to write another four um, for that. And I have a historical novel also coming out um, in October this year. So I do sort of lose count a little bit. Um, but um, yes, I think it's 24 or 25 so far. And I think it's 24 and it will be 26 by the end of this year. But um, don't quote me on that. because <laughs> That must be a lovely position to be in, to have lost count of how many books you've published. Um, I think it's just a, an accurate reflection of how disorganised I am. <laughs> Well, we're celebrating our anniversary this year, of uh, this week, actually, of the very first book we published, and we've now reached, I can't remember, we've lost count of our Well, no, I knew he was going to turn to me to give the number. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's not as many as you, but no. we're, we're in the teens, but it is... Um, I think we're doing our A-levels, yeah. put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're, we're immensely proud of what we've well, achieved in, in that year, too, but yeah. to have... You, you've seen the colossal shift over those 12 years of publishing... Uh, in the way that the industry is moving so um, is it getting tougher do you think to to make an impact or is it uh, are things yes no absolutely I mean there are so many books being published now Uh, do you know how many books the British Library British Library registers how many new books they register as being published um, every day this includes all books, non-fiction, fiction, children's, whatever. But I think it's just print books. And do you know how many they register every day? No idea. I should know, you know, because of the Writers and Artists Year book, but I don't. Well, it's, it could be every week. It sounds incredible to say it's every day, but I think it's every day. 8,000, and that's in the UK alone. I mean, yeah. every hour, there are so many books being published. And so, yes, I think, um, I mean, the buzzword at one time in publishing was discoverability. And I think it's become even more so because you can write a fantastic book, a lot of people do, and you can put it out there. But how do you get it noticed? Unless you have a massive publisher who puts all their budget behind you, which happens to some people, and that's wonderful for them. Um, But unless you have billboards everywhere, adverts on television, how do you get your book and your name noticed i think it's very difficult so um i think um well the way it has worked for me is that um, i've just built over the years and um when my first book came out i was very fortunate that it was shortlisted for a major award and that sort of put us on the map and uh, at that time i i knew nothing about anything i had no idea what a huge deal this was but um we went to a literary festival and i found that agents and publishers were just saying hello to me because they knew who I was. They knew my name mm. just because it's short, you see. And um, so I thought, okay, that was something quite special. And um, uh, I think uh, the other thing uh, was that there were not as many books being published in those days, but it still took about six books before I was really making a good living from my Geraldine Steele books. And um, then I got to number one on Kindle, and so, again, that helps to sort of spread the word. But in those days, number one on Kindle was because a lot of people had bought your books, a lot of people you didn't know, because I wasn't really doing any promoting. It was just word of mouth. And so I've sort of built on from there because I have a, a fan base. I have a readership. And as each book comes out, obviously, there are a lot of people who buy it because of my name. 
and they might recommend to other people, you pick up other readers, and, and so it goes on. It's a kind of snowball effect. So I wasn't um, by any means an, an overnight success. And in fact, you know Jeffrey Deaver? Yes. I'm absolutely brilliant. He's devilishly clever, and he's such a sweet gentleman. And um, he comes up with the most evil stories. And he said to me, um, he said he was an overnight success and it only took him 25 years. So I think that's <laughs> one way of um, getting your name known. You just keep going and just keep hoping that um, people buy your books. But uh, I think the, um, the internet has changed the publishing landscape completely. And I'll just tell you a little story. When my first book came out, I think it was in 2009, and another author said to me, um, you should ask your publisher to bring this out as an ebook." Well, here I was, a writer, published author in the world of publishing. I'd heard of ebooks, but I didn't really know what they were. And so I did mention it to my publisher. And about six months later, they got around to bringing the book out as an ebook. I mean, how the world has changed. Mm. Can you imagine a, an author with half a brain these days not knowing what ebooks were. And now <laughs> books sell far more as ebooks than they do as print books, particularly, you know, with lockdown and so on and not being able to get out and about and into the bookshops. But um, of course, the internet has been a wonderful thing. It has democratized the whole process because literally anybody can write a book and publish it. People can self publish. So it, the, um, the gatekeepers are no longer the only route into being published gatekeepers like yourselves you know publishers mm. anyone can publish and of course there are hordes of new publishers coming along lots of digital only publishers very very good publishers some of them um so for an individual writer how do you get noticed among so many other books coming out it's you know must be bordering on impossible really for new writers now i think um, so that's the kind of other side of the coin, really. Yes, the internet is wonderful. It has opened up this opportunity to everyone. It's it's really democratizing. At the same time, it's a little bit like, you know, that expression, everything is art. But then you think, well, if everything is art, then the concept of art becomes meaningless, doesn't it? Or, or they say, yeah. Everyone, yeah. everyone can be a genius. Well, then the word genius completely loses its significance, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, I think the the landscape in publishing has changed completely and who knows where, where it's going to go. I mean, there's this sort of joke, isn't there, that more people are writing books than reading them now. And, and yes, I think that's very true. Writers, well, writers are also readers, most of them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, things are changing and changing very fast. You, you, you move in... Um those sort of literary circles as a result you know festivals and uh, meeting agents and things like that do you sense that they're uncomfortable with this this change in the sense that they're no longer the sole gatekeepers to the industry um I'm sure they are a little bit miffed but no I don't get that sense from anybody at all I mean in some ways it's a wonderful thing and also I'm quite sure that agents and publishers are keeping an eye on new books that are coming out um I think uh, a lot of it comes down to promotion and publicity. There are some excellent new writers um, who, whose background is in digital marketing and they do very well and their books deserve to do well, but they're, they're doing so well partly because 
they know how to market their books. Whereas, you know, people like me who don't know anything about marketing and um, nothing about the digital world are obviously going to be at a disadvantage. But then there have always been winners and losers, haven't there? Mm. And obviously, you know, people who managed to find a, a traditional publisher were the winners and people who didn't were losers because their books couldn't be published. So I think it's um, it's a change. Yes, I would imagine and I may be wrong, but I would imagine that the bigger, more traditional established publishers are probably not too pleased about having to share their platform with so many people uh, because it does kind of water things down a little bit for them, doesn't it? But uh, I don't know. Uh, I, th I think that's right. And I think they are they are trying to adapt as best they can. And, you know, we, I think we've noticed this in the last year because we follow the sort of publishing industry quite closely, don't we? And um, they're sort of dabbling in the sort of techniques that self-published and smaller publishers use, but they're sort of, because they're so big and well-established and they've got all their own, the methods that they've been using for years and years, they're struggling a little bit, but some of them are doing quite well. But yeah, so they are adapting because they have to, to survive, don't they? It's a case of being adaptable, isn't it? Yes, mm. absolutely. And I think, as you say, they're, they're looking at what is working with other people and um, trying to emulate that and quite right too. I mean, why wouldn't they? It'd be silly not to, wouldn't it? So mm. um, I, I think in some ways it's very exciting and I think it's great that this is an opportunity open to everyone. What could be better than writing and reading, you know, fiction? But uh, I think for someone who is making a living from writing and relying on their income from writing, it's maybe not quite so great. But other than that, I think it's... In general, I think it's wonderful, really. Um, but it's tough. It's tough. I think it's always been a tough business, really. It's always been a bit um, brutal, really. I mean, writing is a wonderful thing. It's a, a, a creative impulse. It's an artistic endeavour. But actually publishing, I remember my husband said to me, um, when I because when my um, I first got a publishing deal, I'd just written a draft of one book and was incredibly fortunate to be offered a three book deal by a wonderful publisher on the strength of just that first manuscript. And um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was really just having fun with it. And then I was, I had this three book deal. So I was like, oh goody, I can write another book. And my husband said to me, you're really enjoying this. You're doing it for fun. Your publisher is relying on sales of your book to help him pay his mortgage. You know, it, it was a you know, it's a real world issue, really, isn't it? So um, that made me stop and think a little bit. And um, now, of course, I, I rely on my book sales for my income. And I mean, I do other things. I dabble. I'm doing little writing courses, but I hardly charge anything for those. It's not really a, a money spinner. It's just a fun thing to do. But um, I rely largely on um, book sales to pay my bills so uh, that that's a slightly different animal to just writing a book because I have an idea and oh this is so exciting this is fun and you know I don't suppose anybody else will ever read it I mean when I wrote my first book I honestly didn't think anybody else would ever read it I thought it was a chance in a million anyone would publish it and it never even crossed my mind that I might be writing the first book in a long-running series and here I am 10 or so years on, 12 years on, writing the 18th book in that series. We sold over a million books in that series, heading towards 2 million. And it's kind of, you know, it's taken off, but I never envisaged that when I started writing. 
and the experience of writing has changed as well because of course when I wrote my first draft of my first novel and I was in my 50s I was writing just for me and I had such fun and every other page there was a murder or a drug heist or a kidnap and <laughs> when, when it reached the editor I mean she said come on we've got to make this story hang together and make sense for the reader now when I write I am not just writing for myself I'm also writing for two readers I'm writing for fans of Geraldine Steele who've read all this series so far and are desperate to know what's going to happen next desperate to read the next book Mm -hmm. and probably know Geraldine Steele better than I do (laughs) I'm also writing for readers who might pick up one of my books anywhere in the series and they want to enjoy it just as much as fans of my series do. So I'm writing for existing readers and for new readers. And so I have to bear that in mind. And um, when I introduce a character, I might just have a sentence saying something like, Geraldine Steele enjoyed working with a pathologist she'd worked with him before or something. Um, So that existing readers are not bored by a whole reiteration of what they've read in previous books, but new readers are put in the picture. They know the relationship that Geraldine yes. has with her pathologist. So I'm very much writing for my readers as well as for myself now. In terms of that mental shift between, you know, starting it off as a bit of fun and now relying on the income, being part of a bigger industry, being part of a bigger project in terms of, you know, your relationship with your publisher and your readers, how much has your mindset had to shift with that you know in terms of forcing I don't know if you have to force yourself to write every day or is it just so natural that it that it comes yeah in some ways um my mind hasn't shifted at all I'm I'm still really excited when I get an email from a reader saying they love my book or really excited when I see on Twitter that somebody says I've discovered a new author if one person buys one of my books I'm yes that's the result Mm. even though I've sold getting off two million books. It's still a thrill. And um, when I'm writing, it's kind of not that different, really, because I'm not, when I'm writing, I'm not really thinking about um, what's happening in the real world. I'm in the world of the book. And yes, I am conscious that people are going to read this book. So that is different. That is a bit more of a pressure, I suppose, because to begin with, it didn't matter. Nobody was going to read it. And now it kind of does matter. But I've come so far through the process that um, in a sense, it matters a bit less now because um, I've sort of done it. And and if uh, I, I would be gutted, I'd be devastated, obviously, if, um, if with my 20th book in the series, all the reviews said, oh, she's, you know, ridden herself out. It's got stale. I, I, I work very hard to keep the books fresh and different each time. Um, but um, it may happen at some stage, and if it does, well, it does. I think one, um, to begin with, there was a period when my ego was very much involved in this and I was desperate to get good reviews and so on. Now, I just focus on trying to write a good book. And if it doesn't really work for readers, well, then I'm sorry, but, you know, that, that's just, uh, that has just happened and I've done my best. You can't really do better than your best. And... Um, <clears throat> I think if I was a lot younger than I am, and if I had been a lot younger than I was when I started, I would have taken the whole thing much more to heart and been much more earnest about it all. 
But um, as you get older, you start to see things a bit more in perspective. I mean, my dad said to me the other day, um, he's nearly 96. He's 96 next month. And he's probably the most intelligent person I've ever met. And he said to me the other day, he said, you know, as I've got older, I've realized that the things I used to worry about didn't really matter. And the things I didn't used to worry about didn't really matter. And I think that's, uh, that's quite wise advice because worrying about things can take you down a very deep hole. And I have been there because I am a worrier and I have to stop myself from stressing about things and have to stop myself from worrying about things and just remind myself that it's just me. It doesn't really matter. One, you know, it's very easy to let it, I think, go to your head when you have some success. But actually, you know, there are always other people who are far more successful there are other people who don't achieve the same level of success and uh, you just have to take what you can get and roll with the punches really I think mm. to come up with a few platitudes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very good attitude because I think the irony there is that if you if you don't put too much pressure on yourself you actually your writing I would imagine would flow better anyway because you're you're thinking it doesn't matter that much so you know I think if you've got too much pressure and you're worrying too much, it stifles you, doesn't it? It stifles the creativity. Yeah, I think, I think when I'm actually writing, I'm in a different kind of world and I'm not so aware of all those pressures, although I am writing for readers, not myself now. Um, but I think outside of my sort of writing space in my head, I'm, I'm a bit more kind of relaxed about things than perhaps I used to be. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, you change, don't you, as you go along. I've been trying different things. Um, I've... Uh, um, I think it was this year, yes, earlier this year, I had a dystopian novel published and um, I, I made a decision that I wasn't going to mention the pandemic in my Geraldine Steele novels. I didn't even want to think about it when I was writing them. For me, writing and fiction, reading as well, when I say writing, I'm also fiction, whether you're going into a world that someone else has created or you're taking readers into a world that you're creating, you're going into a different world in fiction and um, I didn't want to think about the pandemic when I was there it was my escape from the real world and um, so Geraldine still lives in a kind of parallel universe where Covid just doesn't exist she just carries on in in the world that we knew and yet you know I thought okay so the pandemic hasn't affected my writing at all and yet I came up with a, a dystopian novel in which a virus strikes the world a virus that not only kills human life but also is also fatal to all life forms on earth and when you think about the ramifications of that it's really quite uh, stark and devastating and so I wrote I wrote that novel and uh, which was published in April it's called Rachel's Story and again that was a novel that I wrote really I think just for myself but it got published and um, I've also written a historical novel which um, it's taken me about three years to write. I did a load of research for it. And I actually, I wrote a trilogy. And then when it went um, to a publisher, I had to cut it down. I think I cut down 23,000 words to about 90,000 words because I just got so fascinated by the period. It was during the Renaissance in um, 16th century. There was so much that I wanted to put into the book. But of course, a lot of it was really kind of information dumps. I wasn't writing a history book. It was a novel with a story. And a lot of what I wrote wasn't really serving the story. So I had to cut a lot of that out and just focus on 
the narrative of my um, protagonist. And so um, I'm, I like to try different things. I'm still writing Geraldine still, and that is my main focus. But I've written, as I say, a dystopian novel. I've written a historical novel. Um, I've also written another dystopian novel, which may or may not ever be published. I don't know. I've also written um, a humorous novel, which will never be published. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have a flair for humor. I found it very funny. I read it to my daughter and she enjoyed it. But um, I don't think it will ever be published. It's a bit silly. The mark. but uh, so I like to try different things and some work and some don't how do your your Geraldine Steele the the core readership that you have react when they see your name against something that's as different as dystopian novels do they do they buy into it because of loyalty to you or do they go well I want more Geraldine Steele don't waste your time with this what sort of reaction <laughs> do you get very careful to um to remind everybody that Geraldine Steele is continuing and the next one will be out on a certain date so they're not missing any Geraldine Steels. I mean the um, one was out in January this year I think was it January February Can't uh the next one is out in um August this year there's another one coming out next January so Geraldine Steele are continuing as much you know exactly as they used to um, I don't write other things that would detract from being able to produce Geraldine Steele. But uh, no, a lot of people um, read the dystopian novel simply because of my name. I tried something different. They thought they'd try something different. And um, it, people were well, certainly, I mean, from what people have said to me and from reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, well, people have really enjoyed it. Um, the only kind of disappointing thing in a way, I think, is that um, for me, was that a lot of people... I've said I can't wait for the sequel and actually I don't think there's going to be a sequel I don't have a sequel to write I mean I could I could write one um if my publisher really wanted one but um so uh, that to me was just a standalone and I felt it ended on a kind of slightly hopeful note for the future but readers can sort of are just left with that note yes. and readers wanted more but I think that's a reflection of we were talking about trends earlier, weren't we? That the trend nowadays that people they want things to have another one to follow and another one to follow, whatever it is. The standalones, I love standalones personally, but I I definitely sense that people if if they love your book, they think well, when they love the characters and they love the world you've created, they want another one and another one. Yeah, I mean, some books really are kind of self-contained. I've written a couple of standalone psychological thrillers, um, which came out. I can't remember. They've been out for a year or two and um, they are very much complete in themselves. A bit like a short story would be complete in itself. Mm. And um, some books, I mean, like um, To Kill a Mockingbird. I know people wanted Harper Lee to write another book, but, but To Kill a Mockingbird or Of Mice and Men, they are complete in themselves, aren't they? You have that sense of closure at the end. You don't want another one. Um, if you've seen a, a production of Romeo and Juliet you don't want to see what happens next do you it's complete in itself so um yes I mean I agree and I think um well publishers I think are very keen on series because you can build your readership and um certainly that worked for me with Geraldine Steele I didn't know that was going to happen but um yeah there are a lot of people out there who will just by the next Geraldine Steele, just because it's a Geraldine Steele book by me, and so in that sense, promotion is um, is not so hard because 
the publishers just need to, you know, put a few things out to say, here's the next Geraldine Steele, and people will buy it. And people seem to find books. I don't know how they find them. Um, but I guess, and Amazon pops up links to people, doesn't it? And I know I tend to do that myself when I get some promotions from, you know, suggestions from Amazon. If it's an author I know and like, I will automatically buy their book, even if I'm not going to read it for a while. Um, whereas if it's an author I've not heard or will not come across before, then I would probably want to have a recommendation from somebody um, before I before I bought it, because there are so many books out there and there's so little time. There are so many books by authors I love that I want to read. And some have been on my to-be-read list for years. Um, yeah. I recently read a Neville Shoot, um, which one was it, On the Beach? Oh, yeah. Time. It's a wonderful book. I don't know why I didn't read it sooner, but I've had it, you know, lurking around. And, and it's nice to have books that you haven't read yet, because then when you're feeling like reading, you can find something to read, can't you? It's one of the best decisions, isn't it? When, when you've just finished a book and then I, I have a pile by my bed, a pile under the bed and a shelf of my to read books. And I love just, oh, what do I feel like? Oh, I forgot yes. I had that. <laughs> yes, yes. And I do try new authors sometimes. I'm, I'm reading um, The Puppet Show by M.W. Craven. Oh, right. Right. yeah, yeah. That's on my to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> to read list, I mean. Won the gold dagger, so I thought, well, that has to be worth reading. He also gave me a great um, blurb quote. He loved my latest Geraldine Still book, and he gave me a great quote for that. So I thought, okay, he likes my books. Perhaps I should get around to reading his book now. And I'm really enjoying it. And I also read the first um, J.K. Rowling, uh, Cormoran, um, I can't remember what it was called now, but the, the first Robert Galbraith mm. book. Yes. Um, with Cormoran Strike. And I, I enjoyed that very much. I think she writes very readably. So um, I do try new things, I try different things, but I like to have the authors that I like. And sometimes I go back and reread things. Um, when I was feeling particularly sort of miserable with the, it was probably the first lockdown or maybe the second lockdown and things were looking pretty bleak before we had the vaccine. And I went back and read um, one of the Narnia books, my favourite <laughs> Narnia book, which, you know, I loved as a child. You know, we have our sort of comfort reads, don't we? Or Jane Austen is a bit of a comfort. It's read. funny you say that. For me, it's, it's the famous five. If I'm really poorly yeah. in bed, I will read the famous five. Yes, it's, it's sort of unchallenging and entertaining and fun. And it's, it's almost sort of as easy as watching television, really, isn't it? That, yeah. Uh, yeah, and sometimes you want to try something more difficult and then I might go for a John le Carre or something where you have to kind of keep your wits about you to work out what's going on sometimes I need to read them more than once but um sometimes you want to be a bit challenged and sometimes you just don't you just want to read something easy and I think as well like reading a series I mean when a reader who is reading their way through the series when they come to another Geraldine Steele the, the way in is a little bit smoothed for you because you know the character it's a bit like um, Ian Rankin said when he goes back to a rebus after a break it's a bit like returning to old friends and it is easier when you spend time in the company of people you've known for years you feel a bit more relaxed when you meet new people you're a little bit more you're kind of um you know a bit more careful what you say and how you behave because you don't know what they're going to think of you and all the rest of it and I think it's a little bit the same with books you know if you if you've read 15 Geraldine Steele books and you pick up the 16th you know you're going to enjoy it you know the characters and uh, so it's a different kind of read isn't it to something totally new and 
really challenging, I think. When you're also, it's easy to read, but uh... <laughs> when you're launching into a new series, uh, you've launched two further series, haven't you? And um, indeed, these standalones. What is the 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 spark for you? What's the creative spark? Do you go for a character, or is it a situation, or a uh, scenario which needs uh, you know what, what what normally piques your interest and then develops into the books? I mean that has changed a little bit. Um, certainly with writing a series book, um, I have a publisher's deadline coming up, so. I will sit down and I don't know what I'm going to be writing about other than that I've got my main characters um, that I know and I've got my kind of setup that I know. Um, but in terms of the killer, I often don't know what the story is going to be. And it's the killer who drives the narrative in my crime novels. It's the killer mm. who really interests me. Um, and in each of my books, the killer is totally different and that is what differentiates one book from another uh, within the series. But um, I'll sit down and I'll think I have to deliver a manuscript in six months. And that sort of pressure I find quite inspiring really. And um, I think if I had all the time in the world to write the book, I might not come up with an idea so, so quickly. And I do sometimes literally start writing and the ideas start to flow as I'm writing. So I don't always have a great plan in mind when I start a book um, and um, with my other books um, what sparks them off it could be anything really I mean I wrote a book set in Seychelles and uh, that was based on an anecdote that my husband told me from an experience he had when he was in the Seychelles when he was a lot younger he was working as the accountant in a hotel there and there was a political coup while he was there and it was quite a frightening experience for mm. an ex and um, so I thought, what a wonderful gift for an author to hear that story. And so I wrote that book and that was a hard gig. We had to go and spend time in Seychelles. But what oh, tough. <laughs> uh, so that was that one. Um, and um, another, it might just be a character pops into my head or something. Um, one of the um, creative writing courses I ran, we were talking about just this subject and things about things you overhear. And one of the girls on the course said um, that she overheard somebody saying, if only she'd stopped there. And that was all she heard. And we had a whole discussion about what that could have been about. And really a whole book could quite easily spin out from yeah. that because who was she? What's her backstory? What's her history? Who does she live with? What's her life like? What was she doing where she should have stopped? And how far did she go when she didn't stop? And did she take a step further? A bit like Macbeth, you know, I am so far stepped in that returning were as tedious as go or you've committed yourself so far that you then have to do something else to cover up what you've done. And then you have to do something else to cover that up. Mm. And before you know it, you've done something absolutely horrendous and there's no going back. Um, was it that? Or, or was she just having a row with a friend? You know, it could have been anything. Perhaps she had too much ice cream. <laughs> so all of my stories really, um, and a lot of authors will say this, all of my stories start with a what if. Yes. What if you, okay, you live with a partner, but your partner is away for the weekend and then you're woken in the night by a noise in the house. What if, go on from there. Um, mm. What if, you know, your partner leaves their 
phone at home and you see some messages that you shouldn't have seen and you realize your partner is having an affair or is he you don't know what if i mean there's just any almost anything could um lead on to a to a story couldn't it um i, I i'm sure you know of um um i can't remember his name barclay Limo barclay wonderful american writer and yeah. um I was really fortunate to be on a panel with him in BouchCon in New Orleans one year. Um, and he's, again, a lovely guy. But um, he said he always puts his knives um, blade side down in the dishwasher <laughs> because, uh, you know, otherwise you could inadvertently cut your wrist when you're just taking the knives yes. out. Yeah, that's, that's my kind of guy. That's how I think. I mean, I, I see, I see um, potential danger everywhere it makes my husband laugh um what was it i said the other day i can't even remember but um uh you know I, I i just i think i probably missed my um metier as a health and safety officer because i could <laughs> <laughs> i think you did yeah because you, you can spot it because i'm oh, the opposite you are the opposite you are definitely the opposite you mow the lawn with my bare, bare feet. feet i, I know it does my nut any number of potential hazards where somebody could inadvertently kill themselves or maybe somebody could set it up maybe it'd be a murder you know i mean so what if yeah but um, i love the feel of the grass on my feet oh, <laughs> you leave that I, it, it, honestly i i have this um this issue where i see bare feet and i imagine all the things that could happen to those bare feet yes, um, oh, so. yeah. and i'm the sort of person i just love running around the countryside in bare feet no but you know there could be bees there could be bees, there could be it could even maybe be snakes. I don't know. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially around here in Staffordshire. My goodness, the snake population. Is that why you never sit outside when I mown the lawn? I can't. No, I can't <laughs> do it. it make, well, you know, it makes me go funny because if I see bare feet, I, I do think this. Or I, even if I see somebody in in sandals, um, I think it's because I'm diabetic, and so I have to look after my feet. Because if I got an injury in my foot, it probably wouldn't heal. That's the nature of diabetes that's, you know. that's, a, that's a reasonable that's a rational fear isn't it but i mean what if okay just coming back to running around the countryside what if you inadvertently trod on a buried murder weapon that had the blood of the victim on it but would also now have your blood on yeah, and dna weapon? yeah and then oh. someone found a murder weapon and so then suddenly you know that day you're at home having a cup of tea in the afternoon just noodling about <laughs> and then there's a knock on the door and the police come in and arrest you for murder i mean you got to yeah be because you gave your dna away three years ago yeah, that's, a, know. that's a great story but it's not going to stop me <laughs> <laughs> well there we go there's no stopping her <laughs> now that's that that is a key question it's interesting i, I i've been proofing one of the, our forthcoming uh, publications and within that book uh, it's a police procedural set in Scotland, and the, our main investigator uh, plays a game with her team of the five whys. As, you know, and this, this is something that uh, our, our author Harry has uh, picked up from uh, a creative writing course. It seems so. Ask your que- characters and everything you write why, and keep saying why, so you can yeah, justify yes, it. Do you- yeah, yeah. You have to have yes. I mean, you you. Um, Ian e. Forster said that um, the king died and then the queen died is a story. The king died and then the queen died of grief is a plot. You have to have motive. You have to have reasons why your characters do things. Yes, I mean, you can't just have characters randomly doing things for no reason and the reader doesn't know why. 
Of course, <laughs> everything has to be, you know, what if and why did they do that? Yes, yeah, yeah, your characters have to have motives. They have to be driven by something that the readers can pick up on. Absolutely, yes, he's absolutely right. I haven't heard it called the five whys, but um, yeah, characters have to have um, reasons for what they do because um, unlike real life, fiction has to make sense and it mm -hmm. has to be believable. So, I mean, real life so often is not believable, is it? But we can't get away with that as fiction writers. No, so, um, no, it has to be, you have to set up its own credibility. And I think it's what's interesting what you're saying about the way that you're able to refresh each Geraldine Steele book is by creating an antagonist that drives or warps the world. So you create the world around them. Yeah. And then and you're, you're piercing it with Geraldine. Yeah, she develops a little bit in each book. Not, not massively because there might be new readers reading the book, but uh, she has a relationship with um, her sergeant. And of course, I mean, there are so many things I didn't... I mean, I, I could write a textbook on how to write a series now because I have probably made every possible mistake <laughs> that one could make. Because when I started, I didn't know I was writing a series. So just for example, I started Geraldine being far older than she should have been at the beginning of a long-running series because she'd be way past retirement age by now in real time. But um, she's a little bit like um, Poirot and, you know, she doesn't age. I, I fudge her age a bit. I made a big mistake of, um, of giving her niece an age in the first book. She had a birthday party. So I have to sort of work around that a little bit um i mean i just made so many mistakes um with her but um i had no idea that she was she was going to um you know have, have a whole series so uh, i have set the first book in a place that doesn't exist and this is a tip for um aspiring writers if you're writing a novel set it in a real place because then people who live there are going to love it and you can make contacts when we can get out in the real world again, you can make contacts with the library, with the bookshops, and or you're building a readership. Yes. Well, I didn't know that, so I just made up a town. Um, when I, uh, Geraldine relocated to London at one point, and she's now moved to York, and I've got a huge following in York. They absolutely love it. <laughs> and 16 is coming out in this series, and already um, there's going to be a feature on me in a big glossy Yorkshire Life or something magazine, and Yorkshire News is doing something. And I'm usually at Yorkshire, uh, York Literary Festival. And, you know, there's interest in the book. Whereas if your book's set in a fictitious space, that doesn't happen. Um, so I've made so many mistakes, but um, I, I've learned on the job. And so I know all the challenges, all the pitfalls of writing a series. And um, one of the things that um, becomes increasingly difficult is to fit in the backstory. Because... People who are reading through the series, they know all about what's happened to Geraldine before. But people new to the series, you know, people might read book five or book seven in the series. And they want to enjoy it just as much as people reading the whole series. I, I, don't, I don't want people to feel, oh, you've got to read the whole series. You have to buy more books. You know, you pick up a book, you want to enjoy it. Um, but so I have to kind of slip in bits of the backstory without boring new readers. Yes. Or yeah, it's tricky. If you don't say enough, then new readers don't know what's going on. If you say too much, existing readers get bored. And as the, as the series goes on, Geraldine's story develops and there's more and more kind of backstory. So um, that's a challenge. But um, 
there's so many things. I mean, Geraldine had um, a sergeant in the first three books who he actually became very popular in his own right. And so I wrote a trilogy for him when Geraldine and he split up. And um, he made a cameo appearance in each of her books and she made a cameo appearance. <laughs> in each of his books. That was great fun, but quite complicated. Um, they're now back together in, um, in York. I couldn't have planned it better, but it just somehow worked out. I mean, it's been brilliant. But that's a bit of backstory that, um, you know, needs, that, that new readers need to be put in the picture with. So, uh, but I do say that each of my books works as a standalone and it also works as part of a series. And that's a bit of a challenge for me as a writer. But I think it's important because it's only fair to readers, isn't it? Absolutely. And I've narrated series for authors and, and, and noticed how subtly they have to kind of drop in those those moments. Um, especially if, you know, I mean, I, I'm, let me see, I've just narrated a book which would be a tenth in a series. and the DCI involved, um, you know, has had quite a, quite a sort of vexed private life, don't they all? Um, and it's, it has to sort of, you know, has to sort of, it is a sort of sinuous dropping in of those back details, but you know, but uh, often it's just a line just enough. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, um, I mean, this is where, um, it, it can be quite difficult when you're writing backstory, um, it, not in a series, just in, in any novel, writing backstory to make it immediate. And as you say, it can just be dropped in. You know, somebody just says, oh, well, you know she's divorced, don't you? Or, uh, you know, her first husband killed himself. Yeah. Or something, just something like that. And that, some sometimes less is more and all that. Sometimes just one line can say yeah. so much, can't it? Yeah. Um, so, so do you think... Do you think you would ever consider writing a how to write a series book, a non-fiction guide? And, and can we encourage you to do it and bring it to Hobart, please? <laughs> um, well, I mean, at the mo- I mean, I could certainly do it because at the moment I'm I'm doing these um, online creative writing classes. I've I've never hosted on Zoom before, and um, so it might sound silly, but the big challenge for me has not been doing um, the the sessions. Because it's, it's, I do short courses, it's just six hours, one hour a week. And I've run intensive two-week courses. So, you know, I have plenty of things to say. Um, the challenge for me has been actually hosting the Zoom meeting and sharing the screen. But um, yeah. I, I, no, I, I, I don't think I would write a book about how to write a book because um, one of the things that I quote in my uh, course is, um, I don't know if you know the late, great William McIlvanny. Yes. yes. Father of tartan crime. I met him, actually. Um, he, lovely guy. He's, he's dead now. And um, he said that um, he thought one of the best pieces of advice that he gave when he was teaching creative writing was to tell his students not to listen to anybody else's advice. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I, yeah, I could write a book about the craft of writing, but writing is really a creative um, mm. exercise. I don't know, possibly. I mean, I'm having great fun teaching the, the courses because I like to be interactive. And um, so uh, I, I could certainly write a book on how to, but that's not something I particularly want to do. It's been suggested to me before. People have said you'd make a lot of money doing that. But um, 
maybe if um if i'm getting desperate for money i'll do it (laughs) (laughs) i think you've got such a wealth of knowledge as well yeah and impart it so brilliantly so yeah it would be very valuable yeah i think i've had a lot of experience partly because um and it's going to sound you know paradoxical but i never went to any creative writing classes myself nobody ever taught me how to write I just read and read and read Mm. and I started to write and I think I mean um, William Faulkner's advice to aspiring writers I think is the best advice there is he said read 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 everything and then write and Mm. basically what he was saying was that you you can develop and hone your um, your judgment by reading other people and you learn what works and what doesn't work you sort of absorb it and um, I read avidly as a child. I studied literature at university for four years, got my master's degree. I then taught in schools for years, and now I write. So I've, I've basically had, well, nearly 60 years maybe of, of reading fiction. Uh, so I've read a lot, and um, I've also now written a lot, and I've been edited a lot. And so I've been very fortunate, really, to kind of learn on the job. And so I think I probably have a slightly different take on things to a lot of creative writing tutors and people who write these books. Yeah. Because um, I would just write from my own experience and you can agree with it or not or take it on board or not. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a possibility. But I, I, I think, as you know, writing a book is very time consuming. And I think at the moment I would much rather be spending my time writing my own books than writing a how to write a book. book. <laughs> That's fair <laughs> enough. You know, it's, you know it, it doesn't really sort of inspire me, but um, I probably should. Maybe I will one day. You never know, do you? I mean, I never watch ever had the space any, and all that. <laughs> I, I never ever had any intention of um, of writing at all. And then one day I had an idea and I started writing, and here I am. So I certainly never thought I would write a dystopian novel, but I did. I never thought I could write a historical novel, but I have. So you don't know, do you? You never know what's going to come up. (laughs) No, indeed. One of the themes of this podcast is really so we explore our lives as publishers on the other side of the of of the debate, I suppose, and the 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 relationship between um, ourselves and our authors. But in terms of what you've learnt in those twelve years of publishing, um, I mean, there's there's tons of advice, I'm sure, for for people who are you know having a first experience of being published by all, by publishers. Um, what is that relationship like for you now that you're established and you, you know, you've sold as many books as you have, does that give you extra clout in terms of, look, I'm not going to make that change that you want me to do, or I'm not going to pursue that line or whatever. Okay. So, um, in terms, first of all, um, so there's relationship and there's making changes. First of all, in terms of making changes, um, editors will only ever make suggestions the book is your book, and um, generally, I follow my editor's suggestions quite slavishly because, you know, if you don't trust your editor's judgment, then mm. it's the wrong editor. And um, I've been very fortunate that I've had brilliant editors, and um, they've known far more about the market and the genre and writing than I do. So I've listened to them, and um, I would say ninety-nine percent of the time. I look at my, an editor's suggestion and I'm, oh, why didn't I think of that? It's so mm-hmm. obvious. Um, occasionally I disagree and then I won't make the change, but there will be a reason. The decision is mine, but um, I trust my editors and so far they've given me great advice. But it's 
kind of a dialogue between you and the editor and you're trying to work out between you what is going to make the best book and your editor's goal is to help you to write the best book you can possibly write so yeah. why wouldn't you pay attention and listen and weigh up what they've said and if you don't agree for a particular reason then um you don't agree and, and you don't um do what they're suggesting um i'll just give you one example um do you remember it was called the london riots a few years ago it was basically yes. a load of people going out and looting and um my editor said quite rightly that all leave was cancelled. All the um, police officers were called in. And yeah, I just didn't mention it in my book. And she said, and, and, and Geraldine was working in London at the time. And I thought about this, but because of this <clears throat> sort of issue with Geraldine's age, and I don't want her to age, I'm, all of my books are <clears throat> contemporary, but I don't specify a date and I don't want to pin them down to a particular yeah. date. So I decided to ignore the, the London riots um, in the same way as I've ignored the pandemic. Um, Geraldine lives in her own world. So that was just one example of where I disagreed for a reason with my editor and didn't do what she suggested. Um, but it's a conversation between you and the editor. And if they make a big suggestion, you might follow it or you might discuss it with them. Um, in terms of relationship with the publisher, I've been so unbelievably lucky. I really did luck out. Um, I'm still with my very first publisher um, who took me on as a complete unknown and offered me a three book deal for one very ropey manuscript um, about 12 years ago. And we've worked together for 12 years. He's a friend now. Um, maybe because I'm, you know, a mature person, I don't know. I like to work with people I get on with. I like to work with people that I like and people that I trust. And um, so, I mean, he, I trust him absolutely. I mean, just in terms of royalties, you know, you get this, you suddenly get, uh, he's very kind. He pays me monthly because I don't want to wait that long for the money. Sure. And um, so it's a bit like a salary because when I gave up my day job as a teacher, you know, every month on the dot, the salary comes in. When you, you know, throw caution to the winds and you just start relying on your writing for your income. I felt a bit nervous about dealing with waiting three months or six months. Um, so I discussed it with him and he agreed he would, you know, pay me my royalties monthly, which is great because it's like I still have a salary coming in every month and that makes me feel a bit more secure. Um, but um, he's been very kind to me, very generous. Uh, it's worked very well for him as well, obviously, because the books have sold very well. So, um, you know, he, but he took a punt on a complete unknown. And, um, but yeah, I mean, with the royalties, you know, you get these royalty statements. I can't make head or tail of them. I mean, my husband is my financial advisor. He looks after my affairs. He's a chartered accountant. He reads the royalty statements. But I mean, how do we know how many books have sold in a bookshop in Czechoslovakia or something? I don't know. <laughs> um, you have to trust your publisher yeah. I trust him absolutely and um, I really like him and you know we in the days when we can we'll go out um, from the ill and um, when he used to take us out I mean to begin with he would take us out for a pizza which was great but then you know <laughs> gradually it's become you know a rather nice restaurant he takes us to you know as, as we've done better and better and um, so it's a relationship and it's a friendship um, and uh, I like that. I like mm. that very much. There's nothing, I mean, it's a, it's a relatively small publisher. 
so it's not a corporate environment and um if i want to pitch a new idea he doesn't have to discuss it with a whole team of people he'll just say yes or no or you know um once or twice I've asked him for a bigger advance and he said, well, no, that's the advance. You know, it's a relationship, it's a, it's a discussion and um, it works very, very well. And I don't actually have an agent for my Geraldine Steele books. And um, I just went straight to a publisher and I do have an agent now, but I exclude the Geraldine Steele books from our agreement because I don't really need an agent. I mean, they're, they're doing well, they're selling as well as they're going to sell. and um, you know, we've had a few um, near misses at the television. I mean, there's not really, other than keeping going, there's not really much more I want to do with them. Mm. Mm. So it's it's a good relationship. And if it wasn't, I would not still be with him. I wouldn't have stayed with him. And he probably wouldn't have stuck with me. Um, I don't know if you know the author, Jim Salis. I know the name, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he wrote The Drive, which was made into a film with Kerry Mulligan and Ryan Gosling. And, yes. Um, he, he's a wonderful writer. Um, he he was writing books, writing books, and you know, ticking over, uh, still teaching at university. And then suddenly he became a big name, I think, with this film. And um, all the big publishers started making him offers. And he said, I've been with No Exit, that's the publisher I'm with. He said, I've been with No Exit for 20 years, whatever. He said, They've stuck by me when my books weren't selling well. I'll stick with them, thank you very much, now that I am doing well. And I like that. Yeah, yes. me too, yeah. I like that attitude. And, I mean, unless my publisher, No Exit, didn't want to publish me anymore, I will always stick with them. I think loyalty is an underrated value. Mm. Mm. I have written other books, obviously, with other publishers. Um, I wrote a trilogy for Thomas and Mercer, um, and that was, I mean, they were very, very good, very professional. The whole thing was very corporate, um, a lot of money involved, but um, it wasn't really my world. And um, although they were all lovely people. And um, I also um, occasionally write some books for a digital only publisher. And um, again, I really like um, the publisher and you know, we go out for lunch occasionally and it's good fun. And I like to work with people that I get on with. So um, I, I will carry on with no exit, but I'm always open to, you know, I have a dystopian novel that nobody's wanted to publish yet. So if you're interested, <laughs> I can send it to you. <laughs> In fact, you might have already rejected it. I don't know. Um, I rather liked it. But anyway, some books just don't don't fly, do they? Um, so, um, yeah, who knows? I might come up with an idea tomorrow and write something and send it to you and then... Uh, you can probably reject it. But, uh, no. <laughs> I think it's a, it a strong, strong I've been very that, that would happen, yeah. <laughs> Catch me on a bad day. I've yeah. had <laughs> I think I'm the gatekeeper, though, aren't I? Yeah. Submissions? <laughs> I um, no, I've, I've had a lot, of, a lot of manuscripts accepted and published by... Well, I've worked with three publishers now. But, mm. uh, so I've been, I've been very fortunate. And, um, and I think... Now that I have a name, I think that helps as well. Um, I think um, if I were to write a, a crime novel, or I mean, people always ask me for psychological thrillers because I've done a couple of standalones. I think they would be accepted quite readily because I have a name in that area. I think people are a bit more wary about accepting me 
writing a different genre. It's like, like you said yourself just now, you asked the question, would people read a dystopian novel that I've written because I'm known as a crime writer? Um, but I think fortunately I have a, a large enough following that enough people, <clears throat> enough people did take that, um, take that risk. And of course, some readers of crime also are also fans of dystopian. Mm, that's fiction. true. So, we uh, don't all just read one genre, do we? No, As no, readers. No. I remember thinking um, when I was first writing it, I was thinking, I'm not really a fan of dystopian literature. But then I looked up dystopian literature and I saw some of my favourite books, of course, 1984, mm. um, Tale. Uh, Fahrenheit 451, just so many, you know, um, H.G. Yeah. Wells. I mean, there are lots of dystopian books. Huxley. Oh, yeah. absolutely. So, um, Neville Shoot on the beach. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, um, but I kind of, at the moment, in my headspace, I'm enjoying trying different things. It was fun writing a dystopian novel. It was fun writing a historical novel. I never wanted to be known as a kind of one-trick pony I like to challenge myself, um, which is why I think I thought, okay, I'm not doing um, in the real world creative writing courses at the moment, which I do do when I'm invited to nice places. So uh, <laughs> Greek Island was a, was a good one. We've been to Turin, uh, where else have I done? I mean, all over the place, um, France. Um, but um, so I thought, well, I'll try them on Zoom. So that's been a bit of a challenge. But um, now that I've got that under my belt, um, I have got an idea actually for um, a psychological thriller. It's a bit more of a kind of cosy. So it's quite different to what I've written before. So I might, I might get that written. Um, and I do need to get Next Geraldine finished. It's, it's due in December and um, I've half written it and got a bit distracted. I think partly because of lockdown, I've had so much time that I've not been under so much pressure to get it finished. So it's going to be on the back burner. I know where it's going. Um, so, yeah, I might write another psychological thriller, actually. I've got, I've got the idea for it. I started it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a funny combination, I guess, because I'm, I'm loyal and I'm sort of keep going. And like with the Geraldine Steele, I'm doing them and I will keep delivering them. And I'm very sort of solid, if you like, like that. But there's a part of me that's also a bit of a butterfly and I want to flit about and try different things. <laughs> Let's try hosting on Zoom and I can do a creative writing class. Or let's try a dystopian novel. Let's try a stand <laughs> It's fun. I love it. I love it all. Yeah. No, it comes across your your passion for writing and for, for experimenting is great. And long may you flit. Yes. Keep, keep <laughs> flying around. <laughs> Lee, it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Oh, really? Going quickly, didn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. Words just pour out of me all the time. My husband loves it that... Uh, I'm writing because when I'm not writing, I'm talking all this time. <laughs> Brilliant. That sounds like me. It does sound like you, but you talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, he don't, doesn't write I, enough. No, no, don't write enough. You're right. <laughs> Good luck with your, with your publishing house, which I'm sure is going to go great guns. That was a, well, I think, it, it, you know, we've had some great interviews. That's up there. Definitely. For, Lee Russell, thank you so much for joining us this week. And that really was, uh, one of the most inspiring interviews that we've had and um, you know i'm not going to pick anyone else out but that's um that's up there so we hope um that uh well we'll get round to reading that submission now <laughs> <laughs> yes definitely I've, i did find it after the interview i went back into the inbox and i found it and you know i had that sort of feeling of i had no idea <laughs> yeah i know i know i mean you just you just never know so uh 
we will we'll get round to that. And um, you know, fortunately, the the, the opportunity is still open. Um, later this week, we have another author announcement. Um, someone who is already part of the Hobeck family in the wider sense. Oh yes, we we are quite excited about this, but we can't say any more because it, it's a good one. It it really is, <laughs> you know. And um, I I loved it. I I, I devoured it last week and. Yeah, I mean, that's always a good sign, I think, if I devour a book. Yeah, and I devoured it too. And um, the, we were both reading it at the same time, but I was I was ahead of you and I was upstairs and I sent you a message when I got to the end of delight, pure delight, which is a bit mean because you hadn't quite got to the end yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you sort of hinted there was a gripping twist. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, it's funny you mentioned that because um, I've become... Um, a little bit fascinated over the last week or so with um, hyperbolic blurbs on Amazon. Like, it's good to emphasise the gripping twists in books, I think, you know, it's important. But when they go completely over the top, like um, heart-stopping gripping twists on every page, I saw that. Now, you can't claim that, surely, in a book. A gripping twist on every page? You'd be dizzy by the end of the book. You'd be dead. <laughs> Imagine the adrenaline through. Well, the heart stopping. Yes, you'd be dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're. I think we 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 have this debate all the time, don't we? In terms of how hard do we sell our books and our work? And we have a a natural English. Uh, reserve i think and it's a british reserve really yeah it is a british i mean i think i think it's true of all of our the conversations we have with our authors is that you know let's not overdo it let's not it's a bit grubby to you know hype this and hype that as i think that other countries and you know and i'm looking across the pond to the united states where it's a lot easier you know if you speak to someone you know listen to those podcasts that uh involve you know, successful independent US authors, they're not shy in coming forward, are they? No, they're not. Um, but, but I think the, the, this fascination of mine is also a reflection of the British sense of humour. We like to laugh at ourselves as well. Um, don't take ourselves too seriously. But it is it is difficult. I find, I mean, more than you, I find it difficult to um, emphasise in a sort of a salesman's way certain um, elements of our books i'm getting better at it but i also think it has to be grounded in reality you know it has to be believable otherwise and also you need to think of original ways to phrase the sentences that you're using to um, sell a book so gripping and twist i think has now been overused yeah yeah (laughs) i mean there is um you know many other publishers in our field but one of the leaders in the independent crime publishing field stuffs in gripping twists in their emails about a dozen times it feels yes i know who you talk about and, it, and in their blurbs as well it's it's in every single one every book they publish has a gripping twist and in their amazon thing it's the top line always a gripping twist and we have tried one of our books does have that sort of a sentence in the top line we did we've tried that to see um you know just as sort of an experiment and a comparison to when you don't include that yeah. So yeah. it is all experimentation and it's all learning as well. And it's also listening to the readers. You know, what what do they feel they respond to? I think that's quite important. 
Well, I, I think there's a danger that you can anaesthetise an audience to certain phrases when you see it all the time. Um, and I think, yeah, some some level of self-restraint. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're trying to build a company that, that, you know, really sticks by what we put out there in terms of we genuinely believe what we say about our books. Um, and we're not going to just hype it up for the sake of it. Um, we want you know our blurbs to be a fair reflection of of what you're going to buy um which I, I i dare say certain other publishers and independent authors do not do uh what what i found interesting with with lee going back over one of the points she raised and i think we we sort of uh emphasized this during the interview is that it's the biggest challenge at the moment in publishing is discoverability in the sense that you know we've launched uh obviously new voices into the marketplace and we've used you know we have a number of established writers as well and the the common issue and challenge for all of us is getting people to recognize you know the quality of the books and and and, and pick them up and then hopefully get hooked into the world of, of, of our authors but with thousands of books being published in the uk every day that is increasingly difficult um and so sometimes it's about patience but the number one quality that we are trying to um brand value if you like i mean God, i'm using all this business speak <laughs> the, the, the bottom line is that we've always said a hobet book is a quality book yeah and we we emphasize the fact that we only uh, accept submissions of books that we think are of quality and we like as well and we enjoy reading and, and like you say if you can't stop reading it and you're sat in the chair and you're finishing a book it's a good book it, and we want to you know share that with everybody we only publish books that we like as simple as that yeah so yeah i mean you know that might be a bit limiting <laughs> we might be the only two people well, in the world okay. who like them <laughs> like is probably not the right word um appreciate the quality of i think because i i've said this many times i didn't used to re read crime fiction and i certainly didn't read thrillers and I, although i do I do read some thrillers now and some crime novels. I don't read police procedurals at all, but I know quality when I read it in in that genre. I know, you know, I recognise it. So, if I recognise it when I'm reading a submission, and same for you, if you recognise it when you're in submission, we know that people are going to love reading it. They're going to enjoy it. People who love that genre. Absolutely, yeah, I think so. And and you know, I think the other thing that um, yeah, I. I if I'm swept up into a story and I want to get to the end, you know, and and see how it's resolved and I'm involved in the characters, then I just know it's a really well-written book and it's going to appeal to a lot of people. I, that's just my gut feeling. Um, and often, you know, this industry is about gut feeling. Um, and long may that be the case, because I think that once you get into, you know, judging a book by, um, you know, what's the, the hot genre what's the hot topic of the period uh once you're looking at the spreadsheets uh then you lose the soul of, of what you're doing and we were saying to, to lee off air you know that one of the things that we've we um she was asking us about you know our model and who we assign and all that sort of thing and i said look you know your point about you know it took you six books before you became an overnight success it's the same approach we're taking with all of our authors, really, in the sense we, we're we're uh, looking to build momentum for things to really cascade. Well, we'd like it to be tomorrow, but it's not going to happen. You, know, you have to be patient. 
um, the more that we establish ourselves as a company, the more we establish them, and the more that we uh, publish of their series, the, 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 the stronger the chances of success. Um, and as she said to us, the last thing she said to us was, you know, I'm sure you're going to be very successful. Um, yeah, it's nice to hear. Um, there are times when we're not sure if we're going to be super successful, but I think because we're basing ourselves on very strong core values of quality, of integrity, and of backing talent, we're going to do it. Yeah, another thing interesting Lee said was that when she submitted her first book uh, 12 years ago to uh, an editor at No Exit Press, she said he he didn't know, he'd only... He knew that book. He took he took a risk. He took a punt, and that's exactly what we do. We read one book by some of these debut authors. It moves us. We get that gut feeling. We're taking a punt, and you know we're 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 using our faith in that author and that their talent, and hoping it'll pay off like it did with uh, Lee's publisher. Yep. So yeah, I mean it's this is a this is the challenge and this is the the journey that we've embarked on and um, that we've embarked on together with our with our authors. Um, just to remind you that this week uh, we launched our um, audio version of Sleeping Dogs by Wendy Turbin. Uh, I haven't checked to see whether Audible have picked it up yet. That's always a, a variable, yeah. but it's available elsewhere, and uh, it is a wonderful performance by Judy Dakin narrating it. Yes, um, I mean, last time I checked was Thursday, I think. It wasn't on Audible then, so it might be now. We'll have a look. Yeah, it takes its time. Look, you know, you can't, again, another Amazon company where you just... Well, it seems quite sporadic, doesn't it? Because Over Her Dead Body appeared on the day it launched. Yeah. Um, And sometimes, you know, when I'm sort of programming the content and saying, right, we want it to be released in three weeks' time, I'm hoping within that period that Audible will pick it up because it is a major marketplace. It's not the only one. Uh, in fact, we're finding that the US library market is by far the most significant in terms of revenue for audio, uh, which is rather wonderful. Um, but you, you just cannot guarantee these things. So, And it's uh, quite difficult with publicity. Mean. I uh, haven't really yeah, publicised yeah. Sleeping Dogs Audio because it's not on Audible, and I know that, at least in the UK, that is one of the main platforms, isn't it? It, it, yeah, it is the most significant at the moment, but that is always changing. But it's there, it's out there in the marketplace, um, and um, we're we're thrilled with it. And we spoke to Judy this week about uh, her next project, which is she's narrating Blood Loss for us by Karina Swan. She so, is, yeah. So we, we've got quite a few audio projects uh, in the making at the moment. Yeah, Daria's daughter is being uh, is is on its way. And as soon as my studio is built, I, I was talking to the people building the studio. So we finalised the, the plans last week as to what it's going to look like. It's going to be a great big grey thing in the middle of the living room. That's basically what it's going to be. But um, they're going to contact me sh- shortly to s- talk about delivery and uh, getting it installed. So we're going to have to shift a lot of our stuff that's collected around behind the sofas and around the bookcases to uh, to make room for it. Um, but that's another project for post-Harrogate as we approach Harrowine, as I call it, this week. Yes, the, the the one day when we're going to be able to do a full day's work. Halloween. Yeah, Wednesday. Anyway, thank you again for listening to the Hobcast Book Show. Uh, we really appreciate your support and um, we hope you continue to enjoy it. Please, if you have any suggestions on topics or people or anything that you want us to cover or even things you want us to drop, um, <laughs> let us know. 
uh, at our website at www.hobeck.net where you can catch up with uh, all of the latest information. Um, also, I can recommend that if you pop over to Anthony Dunford's website, the author of Hunted, of course, for us, um, I've added some some fabulous content. He's He's got some uh, amazing wildlife images that he's been taking with his uh, CCTV camera system that uh, protects their shed, but it also captures amazing images. So I've, I've just updated the website there. Check that out. Uh, but for us, who, uh, you know, on as we approach Halloween and the Harrogate Film the Harrogate Film Festival. Harrogate Film Festival. Right, the Harrogate yeah, like can. Um by I the need way, to get my long ball gown out then. Yeah, you do. And, uh, oh I'm I'm laughing because Spike Lee revealed the winner of the Palm Door accidentally at the beginning of the um the ceremony yesterday. Um oh, okay. <laughs> can. <Oops. laughs> Whoops. Anyway, that shouldn't happen uh, at uh uh, the Thixon Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival in Harrogate, which we're going to, as we say, later in the week. But anyway, thanks for joining us on this edition. We shall have, uh, well, we may even release extra hobcasts next week. We'll Should... be fully clothed as well next time. Yeah, we will. What do you mean? I'm fully clothed. <laughs> Put a loincloth on. It's, it's a good job there isn't video with us. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, it's been a pleasure to speak to you again, and um, please subscribe to the the Hobcast to wherever you get to your uh, podcast from. It, it means a great deal to us. But for now, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And me over here, Rebecca Collins. We'd like to say have a happy and creative week. We'll speak to you very, very soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit